Welcome to the Gig Boss Podcast. We've got Chris Johnson on the show today. Chris is a musician, educator, composer, arranger, tech head, entrepreneur, just generally a bad dude. He's toured with the Count Basie Orchestra from 2008 to 2019. He's played uh, with the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra under the direction of Wynton Marsalis. He's played with people like Tony Bennett, Patty Austin, and Christian McBride. Uh, he rolled out his loop therapy sessions on Instagram to his more than 20,000 followers, which he turned into an album of music. His office hours with Chris include things like virtual masterclasses, live online group sessions related to learning how to use Logic Pro, learning how to track horns on your projects, learning how to produce a virtual band, and sessions on things like chord progressions you should know. His content is always interesting, engaging, and meaningful. I had a pleasure uh, watching him work with my jazz arranging students at Michigan Tech, and it was a blast to watch his mastery in action. He's been a part of Grammy-nominated albums. His work scoring music for musicals and web series have been nominated for Emmys. I'm pumped to have him on the show. Please welcome to the podcast... Chris Johnson, my man, Adam. Thank you so much, man. I should hire you. I'm going to take that like soundbite and yep. I'm going to start using that everywhere. Actually, when you go to my website, that's going to be the soundbite that plays. So. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> that's awesome. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, totally. Tell me, tell me a little. I'm just looking at your studio space. Tell me a little bit about your studio space. Uh, this is yeah. something. This has sort of been a work in progress. Yeah. Oh yeah. This has been a huge work in progress for me. Um. So I actually uh, I don't play these bases back here. Um. <laughs> but they look awesome. So yeah. My dad uh, actually played bass when he was in high school. It's like a really great bassist, and cool. uh, you know went on and had a career at General Motors. But uh, when he retired, he started collecting a couple bases. There's like a few more down that way, nice. uh, but they were just sitting in cases. And so one day I was like, "Yo, Dad, so uh, I got a studio set up. How about we like set these up on some stands on top of you know on top of the vinyl down there?" And he was open to it. So, nice. um, yeah, yeah. So those are. But then other than that, this is actually a custom built studio desk that uh, I designed and then uh, had some. Uh, you know, some designers and builders put together. So it's got the uh, the keyboard tray for the 88 key, complete nice. control, 88. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, got the Yamahas, uh, the mutes in the background, a little bit of everything. So this is like my safe haven. Uh, I pretty much, I mean, I have everything I need down here. Like I really, my goal is to be able to just like sit down and create and not have any issues at all, which it's been really, really useful just to be able to just like plop down. Do I need to do? No problem. Right, right. Everything's everything's ready to go. That's everything's something I've always been thinking ready about to go. for years. You know, trying to. I really just started learning how to use Pro Tools Logic like six, six, seven years ago when my first son was born. Okay. And uh, that you know, at that time, I was like, I. I mean, after I got over the hump of just like figuring out why I couldn't hear my playback and stuff. Well, after I got over that hump, it was like, all right, now how do I? create a space where I can just sit down and, and create when I'm ready, right? When the inspiration strikes. Yeah. Uh, I'd say, I mean, after spending, you know, I've always had a setup. A setup has always been key. So it's been, it's been quite a few years that I'd say starting in like 2008, I had like my first set. <laughs> I have to find some video evidence of that at some point. But I started building that and it was very small. Then I kind of had like my road set up and I was always bouncing back and forth. I was on the road so much. Um, this was kind of like during the pandemic was the first time I could think of in maybe ever <clears throat> that I was like stationary. Yeah. And it was like, okay, I'm in one place and I was yeah. happy to be in one place. I don't, I was like, I don't want to get on an airplane. I've done enough <laughs> traveling. I seriously, I'm just so happy to be home that I really just put like a lot of time and effort into just building this space up. And you'll probably see like some of my earlier videos. It just kind of like evolve over time. But this desk was like a major, um, a major come up for me. So like, there's like an L. So like what you're seeing right now is uh, my, my iMac is sitting on the L and the rest of it comes out here. I got the widescreen, uh, 
Yeah, forty nine inch widescreen over there. Anyway, man, I I love this space. It's it's like it's important. But the dope part is even even down to like having the sure like on a on a stand here that's like attached to the desk. I like right. being able to sit down. Everything's ready to go, and I can just create right away. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah. you you mentioned your dad was a bass player. Uh, does your dad play bass again now, or did he just quit and never play again? No, you know, got busy, you know, raising kids, having a family, yep. having a career uh, outside of that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, both my both my dad, my dad played bass. My uncle was a really great keyboardist um, who toured with uh, Quincy Jones and Brothers Johnson and stuff Whoa, like that. Come on. Um, but both of them, I'd say by the time I was growing up, they kind of like just like veered off into other paths. Hmm. And so actually um, my cousin, Lauren, is a per- percussionist in my group. Um her and I are kind of like carrying the musical tradition forward, you know? Yeah. Um, I have another cousin who's a rapper, another one who's a singer. So it's like music is like strong in our blood, but I'd say for this generation, like maybe we're a bit more open to it being like our longstanding career. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. Which is interesting because it seems like maybe Detroit in the, you know, Motown era may have been easier to make i don't know like as a player it's, to make maybe easier to make a living that way yeah it's i, I just say it's it's different you know but yeah. like for the longest time it's like you know what's the serious thing that you do the serious thing you do is you go and you you get a job and you get a mortgage and you do this you know and, and right. knocking that like that's like the path for a lot of people but to be like <laughs> i want to go be an artist <laughs> i want to go be a musician is like right you know i think uh maybe a privilege that is sure. a, a bit more accepted now than it used yeah. to be, but there's still a lot of stigma around it. But and it takes a lot of audacity too. I mean, there's a certain audaciousness you have to have to, to oh, make yeah. that decision, right? I mean, <laughs> Absolutely, and ego Absolutely. maybe too. I mean, or like a, a, a naive, even naivety, depending on where you're at in the process. But <laughs> right, uh, right, that's really cool. So General Motors, like the car industry in Detroit, is kind of what brought your family there. Um, yeah, well, actually, my family's from here, so yeah. Oh, okay. My my dad and my mother were both both born in Detroit. Uh, my dad was in Grand Rapids for, for quite a few years as as a kid. My mom grew up right here in Detroit, and uh, yeah, both graduates of Cass Technical High School, which is like a really famous high school for for music and so many other things. Um, yeah, and I grew up in Southfield, Michigan, which is just a sur- suburb right outside of Detroit. Okay. Cool. Oh. So it seems like you live in this space that a lot of musicians live in, um, where you're teetering between being like a full-time artist and being an educator. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with teaching versus your relationship with artistry? And from experience, I know that these things can be complementary, but they can also be at odds, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, for me, um, it's they're, they're really intertwined. I remember when I was in high school, uh, when I first got serious, it was my high school band director, who's still a really great friend, and my mentor, Damian Crutcher. Um, it was actually seeing him teach music and seeing the way that he touched my life and, and the life of so many other of, of my of my peers. It was seeing that that made me want to be a musician. It was like the music I had a like passion for music and like I always enjoyed music, but to actually be serious enough about it to sit down and learn, mm-hmm. it was actually the inspiration of of the way he talked about music and the way that he taught music and what he brought out of people that inspired me to be a musician. And then I started falling deeper and deeper in love with music from there. But because of that, I'd say right away, like probably by my sophomore year in high school, I believe it was our choir director, uh, Robert Martin. Um, his son was learning how to play baritone. And so I started to have my first private lesson student, like either my sophomore or junior year of high school, I was showing wow. him 
how to like do the fingerings and read the music and going through everything. So, and then I became assistant uh, drum major. Then I was drum major. And then I was like uh, the co-teacher of our theory class, even back when I was in high school and like so many things, like as I always had this approach of, as I learned something, the way that I reinforced it to myself was to immediately teach it to somebody else. So even if I had learned it like two days prior, I was like, Hey, I learned this cool thing. Let me show you. So education to me has always been a part of my artistry and like the sharing, um, you know, the sharing component has always been really huge. And then, so, so from there, you know, I went, when I went to Michigan state, uh, I was a double major. So I was really, really busy, especially my first couple of years. Cause I started off as a double major of music education and jazz performance. And I was on hmm. scholarship for both the classical trumpet studio, as well as the jazz uh, trumpet studio. And wow. so my freshman year, I still can't believe I did this. My freshman year, <laughs> I was playing in a wind ensemble, a brass quintet. I was playing in a jazz combo two big bands and an octet and i was taking about like 20 21 22 credits between jazz studies and music education and i was taking both trumpet uh classical trumpet lessons and jazz trumpet lessons Uh. in retrospect i don't know like i don't know what i was doing or but but for me it was like i wanted to do everything it was like i really loved all of it so it's like let's let's do all of it, you know, sure. and that, that had always been my approach. I mean, eventually I did end up focusing and, and became, uh, you know, primarily just, just a jazz studies major, but stayed involved with the classical trumpet studio, which was nice. Um, and that's like horn on face. What? Bro, eight hours a day. At least it was not, it was not helpful. Uh, I was fatigued all the time. Right. Um, who knows? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it was helpful. I don't know. Maybe I built up some endurance or something, but <laughs> like, my experience was like, my face was just tired all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember leaving college and being, you know, I was in a similar boat where I was playing classical and jazz and I was in brass quintets and jazz bands. And like, yeah. I remember leaving college and not having to play so many hours in a day. And my range just went up by like a third or a and I was like, I, all of a sudden I could play these notes I that were inaccessible to me. Right. In one um, sense, you think that it's going to be so like, oh yeah, build my endurance up. In another sense, it's like, no, <clears throat> you're just going to hurt yourself. Yeah, you're you just know? fatigued all the time. Actually, my teacher told me that when I came into Lawrence, he was like, you practice too much, you're hurting yourself. <laughs> you know, He's like, you need to play right. piano more. And yeah. I sort of wish I had done a little bit more piano playing at that time and took that a little more seriously because that's become such a huge part of what I do now as a writer and right. as an as an educator like you're sitting down at the piano with private students or with your classes and and playing through tunes or whatever uh man if I had taken that more seriously then and that's what's funny is I actually I actually got similar advice and started doing that more and actually got really serious about composition about piano yeah and a lot of times it was like I wanted to keep practicing that was the best thing I could do is like put the trumpet down for a minute and just go over and deal with the keyboard. Um, right. But yeah, from there, you know, I, I, I uh, wasn't a, I dropped music education after a while. I just, I had to, I had to find a concentration, you know, yep. but still continue to teach. I mean, I had um, my first artist in residence um, at Eden Rapids High School uh, and Southfield Lathrop High School, my old high school. So I had an artist in residence at my old high school. I'd drive down there like once a week. I also had another one uh, in the Lansing area at Eden Rapids. And so I was always teaching. I was always a part of it. And I became a part of the uh, Short Symphony Orchestra educational program yeah. uh, as, a, as a mentor, eventually as a conductor when I was in grad school. And I was just always teaching. So to me, it's like the big three were teaching, writing, playing. Mm-hmm. It was always in there. Um, I got inspired to create a, a, you know, a unique practice system, which I'm actually turning into an app right now. More about that later. Um, 
I want to hear that. Then, I want to hear about that. <laughs> I'm really excited for that. And then on top of that, there was, uh, you know, like I was, I was writing books. I was putting this book together, like the anthology of scales and chords, like just trying to document and put things together just to help me and to help my students. Um, yep. And so, yeah, it's, they've always been intertwined. Then later on, it became leadership. You know, yeah. that became a major component of it. Um, I applied for a job and ended up being the director of jazz studies at the University of Utah for four years. And so I was the director of the jazz program there, leading the jazz program. But then since then, uh, you know, now I'm finding myself, I'm the director of a, a program in Michigan uh, as the director of the uh, community music school through Michigan State University on their, uh, their Detroit campus. And so administration became a part of it too, is because I think yep. what's, what a natural inclination is, if you're a, you're a band leader, you're an educator, you're constantly writing music, you're constantly having people read your arrangements and read your compositions, you have to build leadership skills. You mm -hmm. have to build certain skills that are necessary to propel you to that next level. So a natural tendency was to say, okay, on top of that, I'm also going to throw in uh, being an administrator. And so for me, they're all interconnected and, and important. I think that I am uh, I can personally be more effective as an administrator now because I'm actively a trumpet player and actively a composer and vice versa with everything. I think yeah. the administration skills that I've built over the years help my music career because it helps give me a different sense of direction, a different sense of knowing how to delegate than I believe that I would have if I just focused on one thing. Sure. So why leave the gig in Utah? Like, what well, you know, you get this cushy. Maybe it wasn't, but you get the get a get. I mean, we've I've heard people call this like uh, the new record label deal, right? Like people got to get a university <laughs> gig, and so they have steady income, and then they can do their artistry thing. Why leave the gig in Utah? I, you know, listen, I had a great experience at University of Utah. Um, I had some wonderful students, made some great, like, lifelong friends out there in that community. Uh, I was divided. I was always divided. So I'm divorced, uh, remarried now, and mm -hmm. I have two young sons. My sons are now 9 and 11. Uh, at the time that I went to Utah, I think they were like, what were they? They were 3 and 5 at the time. Yeah. And so I was traveling back two weekends out of every month. Wow. I was hopping on, I was teaching class on Friday. When I got done teaching class on Friday, I'd hop on a plane, get in late Friday night, pick my boys up first thing Saturday morning so I could spend all day Saturday with them, have them overnight Saturday, spend all day Sunday with them, drop them back off with their moms, get back on a plane and go back and teach on, on Monday. Oh. And the other weekends, I was on tour with the Basie Orchestra or visiting my girlfriend, uh, who's now yeah. my wife, in New York. And I was just always divided. I was in Utah maybe one weekend out of the month. If I was in Utah one weekend out of the month, that was like a good month. But I was always just on the road. I was just always busy. Yep. And I mean, we had a blast. <laughs> My boys and I talk about that now, how like at that time it was like, oh, we did the most every weekend. So it was like, <laughs> yeah. all right, daddy's coming in town. We're going to go to yeah. We're going to go to the pounce house. We're going to go to the science center. We literally did like three things a day on the Saturday and Sunday. And it was just like, it was amazing. Yep. But... I remember, you know, of course it was taking a toll on me. Of course it was like, uh, it was difficult being away from them. It's, it's like not practical to be a long distance father, you know, as right. much as I was trying to make it work and as much as I was supporting them. Um, yep. I remember, so this must have been 2018, or Christmas 2018. Uh, it's around Christmas time 2018. And my boys, uh, Lulu was in town and she was upstairs sleeping and I was making the boys breakfast. And all of a sudden, my sons, and so they must have been, were they seven and nine at this point? Either six and eight or seven and nine, something like that. They sit me down and say, hey, daddy, we need to talk. <laughs> I said, uh, 
okay. <laughs> like these like little kids approaching me like this. I was like, all right, well, what's going on? They said, uh, this isn't working. Hmm. This isn't working. We want to wow. see you more. We think you should quit your job in Utah and move back here and marry Lulu. Wow. So they came up with that idea. <laughs> I mean, and of course it was already on my heart. Smart and of course kids, it was already man, hard. Bold kids, that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Right. So of course I gave them like a big hug and was like, you know, I'm going to see what I can do. And like left the room and just like bald. Like, I mean, it was already, it was very emotionally taxing. As great as the job was, the location to be away, it just it wasn't practical. It just, it, right. and there wasn't, it's just not a situation. You know, they're not going to, I'm not going <clears> to <throat> try to move them away from the rest of their family and it wasn't sustainable. So yeah. uh, I made the decision. I'd say like the next, within the next two months, uh, I, I turned in my resignation, made the decision to move back. And it was like, I'm just going to figure it out. The crazy part is uh, I finished out that semester and we're talking like July, 2019 or June, 2019 is when I moved back here. We're doing an artisan residency at university of Utah, kind of flying back, but only like twice a semester. I was supposed to go out four times that year went out three times right after the third time it the pandemic hit covid and so many times i was like man imagine if i was like stuck in utah right now right not able, able to, to travel back kids. yeah and it's been listen you know it's been it's it's been everything it's been the best thing possible to be able to be there to pick them up to you know help them with homework to be there just like all the things that you you miss by being gone um and it's not like we had to get to know each other or like i was like this distant figure that they weren't a, they we just we just wanted and needed more you know right, right um and so yeah it's it's been it's been really really great i'm really happy with that decision it took me a minute to you know land on my feet and figure out you know what i was going to do for work but really dove into my business really dove into all the online offerings that i was doing and creating virtual recordings and commissions i was at motown museum at one point i went back yep. to dso at one point and now uh you know for about four months now i've been in this new position at michigan state and it's all it's all come full circle you know wow for sure man that's super cool uh you know i uh i, I remember you telling a story um you know, you know what? First, let's talk a little bit about your your online um, offerings because you, you for know, sure it's 2019. The pandemic is about to hit. I feel like a lot of artists uh, woke up to this realization during this time that we got to figure some kind of passive income thing out. We got to figure out some way to make mm. income in our own businesses, in our own circles, and you know the stuff that you've created on your website. Uh, core progressions you should know or progressions you should know and, and uh, the unlocking Logic Pro and all these various different things where you have a, a combination of, it seems like a combination of pre-recorded master classes and then also live sessions with, with like right. groups of people. Um, how, like how's that been going for you building that up and, uh, and you know, how's it going getting people to register for those sessions? I mean, it's been, it's been amazing. I'm learning a lot uh, as a business owner, as well as, you know, I have a team that I'm working with now, which was something very new for me. Um, funny story, that was actually developed before the pandemic. Oh, wow. So office hours actually started uh, when I was at the University of Utah. So part of what happened was because I was like constantly traveling and you know, that's part of the tenure game too, is like, you have to travel. You, know, you go do these gigs, you go do these tours. That's a totally. part of like retaining, of getting tenure. Yep. Um, but what would happen was sometimes I'd be on the road and I'd have an opportunity and it's like, you know, I got all the approvals that I need to do, but I didn't want to just leave my students with just my graduate assistant or just, you know, do a bunch of makeup sessions. I was like, you know what, there's got to be a way that I can still hold class and give them some information. So I just started recording these short videos hmm. where I would just like, it was just me. It's like, all right, class, the day we're working on X, Y, Z, 
And I would just like record a video of it, screen record me playing piano or something like that, say this is the arranging concept we're working on. And then I would have the TA show that video and it'd be like the first 15 minutes of class is them workshopping through this thing, filling out the worksheets, and then they would do a question and answer and they would send me the questions they'd have and then I'd come back. So it was a combination of that. And also what I noticed is I always had open office hours. That was kind of like my thing is while I'm here, my family's not here. Like, like I'm not, if, if when I was in town, I was pretty much always in my office. It, like right. people would joke about like my students would tag me in their Instagram stories. Like there's Chris at it late again. It'd be like 11 o'clock at night and it'd be like the one light that's on in the, in yeah, the school of music. Sure. But for me, it was like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm on it. Like I'm, I'm working on all the projects I'm doing. And so I'd always invite students. If I'm here, you can just come by and knock on the door. If you yeah. want to, if I'm working on a film score or a arranging project or recording something, you can just come hang out and watch. And then as you have questions, ask me questions. Like that was pretty major for a lot of students. And I remember I learned a lot that way. I used to harass Derek Gardner uh, when he was at MSU. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, hey, can I, can I just like sit in your office and watch you arrange? And he's like, I guess. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. And I used to learn a ton. And every once in a while, I try not to be too intrusive. I'd ask him a question. So I adopted that same principle and I realized some students would share with me that the time that they spent in my office, the time that they spent during my office hours were actually more impactful than most of the classes they were taking at the collegiate level. Wow. Because one, it was one-on-one, -on -one, but it was also like, it was, uh, it was a bit more practical because it was based in like real life experience of like, oh wow, this is an actual project. And yeah. then I remember one time I shared with my arranging course, I was sharing with them an arrangement I did of Hallelujah for the Basie Orchestra. By the time that I showed them the whole process I went through and then they actually got to hear the recording. Like they were there when the record was released and like, Oh shoot, I saw him working on this. So I think that's another component of it was just like wanting to be more real yeah. and wanting to be more project based. And so, so you're I, living, you know, you're doing the, you're living the example of it, right? You're showing them example of what it and is. For me, that how was this very thing effective. actually works. Yeah, for me, that was very effective and it was a great way to reach the students. And it was just, it was just honest, you know, and it still is. Yeah. And so I started office hours at first as like a subscription, like month to month. And I just do like a bunch of just random stuff. Like anybody could just do whatever, uh, change a couple platforms. And eventually I took all that material that was month to month, put it in this bundle. And it was like, okay, I'm going to change models. But if you want to buy this bundle, like sold it. And then I started Progressions You Should Know. And yeah. progressions you should know was like the first, like, okay, this is an isolated course. You buy this course and it's nothing but about chord progressions, uh, chord analysis, chords, scales, voice leading, uh, extended voice leading yeah. for every single progression. And I was working together with my business partner, uh, Alicia, um, Alicia Wrigley from, from Utah. She was actually one of my graduate assistants. And oh, so cool. we decided to become business partners because I said, listen, I want to scale this. I want to take this next level. I'm doing everything. I'm doing the web design, I'm doing all the flyers, I'm doing all this stuff, and I just don't have enough time to pour into it. So she yeah. started getting in on like the marketing side and doing some design work and laying out the website. And we started teaming after a while, I was so busy because especially because I was taking on, you know, some of these other jobs, I was like, I need a personal assistant. And so I ended up, another one of my former students, uh, Ani East, uh, who's now my personal assistant, she joined the team that I had somebody join on for social media. <laughs> and then like, wow. now we're, now we have somebody that's working for us, you know, and these are all contracted workers, but someone was taking on like Google ads and YouTube ads. So you're going to be seeing a lot more of us on YouTube. Great. But my thing was like, I want to build a presence. And as I started studying the models of different businesses that were doing this, mm -hmm. it's never just one person. 
it's a team of people of and it's bigger and it's bigger than me now too. So Alicia has been really um, key in, in actually helping me design some of the courses, particularly the Unlocking Logic Pro course uh, that we designed together. And she was, and she actually took the course as like part of our pilot group. Cool. Um, but that's what's been important for me is now, okay, whether it's a pre-recorded course like Progressions You Should Know or Virtual Band Production, or if it's a hybrid course like Unlocking Logic Pro, my thing is, what are the things that make sense for you to have access to as a student that are pre-recorded? Some of these materials, I, I've, I've taught this lesson again and again and again. Let me just record it really well, make it really high quality, document it. Here it is as a student. Now, if you have follow-up questions, just hit me up. Right. Then there are other things where it's like, okay, with Unlocking Logic Pro, the students were really craving accountability. They needed the information and they needed accountability to put it into practice. Great. Yep. Here's like about an hour worth of pre-recorded material that will definitely get you to learn how to use Logic. Then from there, we're going to have four weeks of classes. Uh, actually, I have one coming up this Sunday. Um, four weeks of classes where we meet for two hours. I'm sorry, we, were, we meet for an hour and a half and just walk through creating projects. I give examples of stuff, walk them through different things, and then they send me projects and I send them feedback videos. Cool. Um, it's been great, man. Honestly, I really prefer this way of teaching versus the traditional classroom. For mm -hmm. me personally, it's it's really, it's like, I mean, this is my vehicle for, for teaching right now is teaching online. And that's really, uh, that's really key. I think people are more comfortable. Uh, they, I record every session so they can go back and they can watch every session and take further notes and dive deeper. Yeah. The students are more present because instead of having to take notes in the moment, they're really immersed in the experience. I I'll let them know what materials are pre already in the pre-recorded videos versus which ones they should probably write down right now. Yeah. And uh, it's been a great resource. And then I leave all the information up on a portal. So anytime they want to come back to it, they just log in and they can they can watch it. And it's kind of customized too because we had unique sessions, because we had unique user feedback videos. So if there's somebody listening that wants to do something like what you're doing, uh, and maybe wants to build a team around them, maybe wants to start a company, did you start an LLC? Did you start a C-Corp? How did you yeah. form, form your so business? I actually, I actually started an LLC when I was in college. It was just incredibly inactive for years. Um, but then like during just, just within the, like, the last few years, finally separated, had like a completely separate bank account just for my LLC. So I have yep. a bank account that's dedicated to my LLC. Only business expenses go in there. Only 1099 income comes in or, or you know, uh, money from products sold. Um, my personal assistant is also my bookkeeper. So she makes sure that everything gets calculated, everything. Um, I, would, I would highly recommend just approaching it from an accounting standpoint. And this is the way that, this is the game changer for me, is when I got to the point where when I started bringing people on and I was responsible for paying more people than myself, I stopped mixing my personal income and my business income. Cause yeah. what happened was there was like one month where, you know, just things are just flying in and out. You're doing whatever, like, Oh yeah, I forgot to take that subscription off there. That shouldn't be on the business account, whatever. Suddenly at the end of the month, I had to reach into my personal account and add more money to my business account in order to make sure I could pay the people that I was paying. I was like, this is ridiculous. Right. Like this should, this, this won't be sustainable in mm -hmm. the long run. So I really got disciplined about what I was spending and why I was spending it. And my new philosophy is this, and I actually want to end up, I'll probably end up doing like a, a webinar or a, a course around this, but my new mindset as a business owner is no one pays Chris Johnson to write an arrangement or to do a masterclass or to do a gig or anything like that. I don't get paid to do that. 
Chris Johnson Music LLC gets paid to do that. And as an employee of Chris Johnson Music LLC, I am sent off to do any of these things. And I get a consistent monthly rate that I personally am paid from Chris Johnson Music LLC. Like a salary. I just get a consistent salary that I pay myself from my business that is sustainable. Because yep. as musicians, you know how it is. Like, oh man, I got this $500 gig. I'm going to go spend it on this, this, and this. Yes. If we can get out of that mindset and say, yep. here's my budget. This is what I need to survive. And I'm going to give myself a little bit of room to play with. I'm going to give myself a little bit of room to save. Right. And you it know, doesn't... January, February, it's like you, you start to run into months where gigs are slow down. You don't make as much money playing gigs. Yeah. Then it's like, how do I handle these swings you know i did i directed the south dakota all-state big band when bob reynolds was doing the all-state combo the same year so bob nice. reynolds and i got to hang out a little bit and he talked a lot about this creating a bank account that's separate from your other thing paying yourself a salary building it up enough so that you have enough of like a enough of like a seed in the account so that you can pay yourself a salary and keep that consistent and then as you build slowly build your salary level up right or build a team and start to pay people or whatever Absolutely. it is Absolutely. And so like when, you know, if a, if a big job comes in, it's not like I get excited. I'm like, oh, I can get this. I can get this. No, not at all. It's okay. Great. The business account is healthy. We have what we need. If something comes up, it's like, hey, I really need to like add this piece to my studio, which I don't need to add anything else to my studio. I went a little crazy last year. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if something comes up, it's like, great. That's a business expense. That's reasonable. But it's, it, and it keeps me disciplined as well. Yeah. And as it increases, uh, I try not to increase my lifestyle. You know? Right. My that's, lifestyle. that's like basic financial literacy, too, which is something yep. I've been trying to figure out. You know, this is my first like real job as well, or, or, or as like a, as an educator, like my, you know, director of jazz studies at Michigan Tech. Before yeah. this, I was adjunct at a couple different universities and colleges, but I was mostly just a full-time player. And it was like that. It was feast or famine all the time. And mm -hmm. I was constantly trying to get ahead of it. Um, and yeah. stay ahead of expenses and stuff, but and it's not like we ever even bought anything crazy. It's like every, anything I would buy would either be to continue to do music at a high level or you know to feed my family. But it's like yep. still, it it became this constant struggle. Like, how do I get ahead of this, and how do I you know how can I structure my my finances? Absolutely, uh, yeah. you know, to be more healthy. And and to me, what I'm amazed, I'm I'm just amazed this isn't taught. And maybe yeah. people don't know, or maybe, you know, the people at the university level, it's like they never figured it out because they're like, oh, well, I'll just start teaching at this university and everything's yeah, right. taken care of now. But for me, it's like, oh, it's no, very, that's it, me. Yeah. But it's very, it's very <laughs> teachable. Yeah. You know, now, now that this information's here, but that's, that's part of it for me. This goes back to like what I talked about when I said I, I, you know, like my approach, even when I was in high school. Oh, great. Now that I learned this, I immediately want to teach this. Yeah. Yeah. I get really excited about like sharing. I mean, Often when I talk about jazz arranging, I, I usually tell people I got this from my uh, man. You know Solomon, that's right. You, yeah, yeah. Say, right. yeah me and Solomon. Solomon made Solomon one time. Solomon Parham, uh, one of my best friends. He was my mentor when I was in high school. Uh, just an amazing dude. Yep. Uh, one time he asked me. He's like, Chris. He's like, is it lonely? <laughs> I was like, what do you what do you mean? He's, he's like, the amount of information that's in your head about arranging and these different things that like you probably don't have a lot of people to talk to. Yeah. Is it lonely? I said, you know what? It kind of is sometimes. There's certain things where it's just like, I got all this like dope stuff I'm doing, but like, I don't necessarily have a bunch of people that understand it. Sure. You know? So part of what has been really cool, um, 
part of what's been really cool has been having this platform to be able to share. Uh, I'm starting a Patreon right now, which is going to be like less educational and more like behind the scenes of just like, yo, I'm in my studio and I'm working on this arrangement. I'm just going to screen record. And if you want to watch, like chime in. That's probably the thing I missed the most about being on campus, honestly, was yeah. like, just show up and just watch me do my thing. Right. You know, have, you, have you done Twitch streaming at all? Anything like that? Yeah, I haven't. I think I'm, I'm going in the direction of, I've thought about that. I'm going in the direction of the Patreon because I yeah. think I can get the quality like a bit higher for sure. what I want. And then I can include other stuff into it. We'll do like a couple of prompts and different things. I'll make sure I let you know like when that gets approved, yeah. <laughs> when that goes out. But for me, it's like I'm finding a lot of value and I'm finding a lot of, uh, a lot of personal satisfaction and being able to share this information and and watching people be helped. There's a couple of students of mine who like I shared my even something as simple as my finale template with. And every once in a while I'm on their story and I'm laughing because I'll see a lead sheet and I'm like, I know that font. That's Optima. Yeah. That's that Optima font. And like like you're using my template. That's exactly what that's for. So it's like a a, a scalable, um, measurable change and impact that I'm making on my students. And I take a lot of pride in that. We're just going to pause there for a sec to say that this podcast is brought to you by the Gig Boss app. Jana and I created Gig Boss because we were leading our own groups, freelancing in others, touring, teaching private lessons, and doing freelance education work, all while raising our two boys. We needed a way to keep track of everything. Create a group, create an event, and start organizing the madness. Gig Boss app is free on iOS and Android. You know? Yeah. So are you purposefully giving some things away and then keeping some things fine behind a paywall as a way of like uh, entry gateway for people to find you and your content? Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, I give a lot away. I'd say I give like, I don't know, like, do you follow Gary V at all? Uh, I know about Gary V now. I've been I've been looking uh, looking yeah. at his stuff. Yeah, he's wild. Gary V's wild. But one of the things that that <laughs> I learned from watching his material is he was basically just talking about like if you just have this model of just adding value as much as possible, you'll be successful. And that's yeah. always been my thing. It's like, I don't, I don't know. I wasn't thinking about the money side of it. I was like, okay, cool. Here's all the stuff. And so, especially when I first started off with like my office hours, uh, social media, it was just like, here's lessons, lessons galore. What I find is that the students actually appreciate the opportunity to be able to have something that's more concentrated and they appreciate the value of paying for something that is going to be at a different level than the free stuff. Because I can give away all this free stuff and it can be sporadic, but it's like, no, no, no. This thing is paid because we're, I took the time to organize it, make it digestible, make it sequential, make it project-based, and make it in a way where you will truly be successful. Random information is great, especially when you already have like a really strong foundation. Yeah. But you know, if we're really trying to learn and grow, we need structure. So to me, the more structured approach is behind the paywall, random free advice and different things and cool things is stuff that's going to just be available to everybody. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Man, that's super inspiring. Uh, hey, I want to go down the trumpet nerdum lane here a little okay. bit. Um, All right. Can we talk a little bit about touring with Count Basie? Like, how did you get the, the Count Basie Orchestra gig and what were those tours like? Yeah, for sure. So uh, when I was in, uh, when I was at MSU, I, I mentioned I studied with uh, the great trumpet player, Ranger Derek Gardner. Um, and he had played uh, for a number of years with the Basie Orchestra uh, in his like early 20s. So I believe he went to, um, I'm trying to remember where he went to undergrad. It might have been, 
it might have been Hampton, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. But I believe he was at Hampton, and then <clears throat> he started grad school at Indiana University, but ended up leaving Indiana to go on tour with the Bay City Orchestra, then eventually finished up his master's at Rutgers. Anyway, I say that to say that like around a similar age of the time that I was working with him, that was around the time that he had started working with the Bay City Orchestra, like in his own life. So I remember he used to tell me stories about the Bay City Orchestra all the time. Uh, and he would just tell me about like, you know, different tours that he did, what it was, rep- yep. what it was like working with Frank Foster. Um, and I remember one time in particular, he told me a story about being in Switzerland uh, for his first tour and just what it was like just riding on this train and just seeing Europe for the first time and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was always enamored by it. And I was like, dude, I will never do anything that cool. Like, I, I will never achieve anything that cool but, but at least at least i get to like sit here and listen to derek talk about it right yeah that was my perception of it at sure. the time yeah um but i remember uh, right after i graduated from msu so this would have been 07 uh, i just finished with my master's degree um i was playing with the gerald wilson orchestra uh, but it was kind of like a Detroit Jazz Festival version that Rodney Whitaker contracted and put together. Oh, cool. uh, Derek wasn't on the gig. He had to miss the gig because he was going to be uh, out with Harry Connick Jr. But, uh, you know, Rodney put this band together. It's like a bunch of MSU people mixed together with some professional cats, you know, from New York or whatever that he flew in. And uh, I remember uh, our special guest that year was Patty Austin. So we were playing like, like she has this ridiculous book of Gershwin's music that she sings. It's just like crazy crazy art so again in my mind i'm like oh this is a one-time thing i'll play with patty austin i'll never get to play with patty austin again this is really cool that that was also very false um (laughs) but it was a really cool opportunity but i remember derek told me he's like hey mike williams from the basie band uh lives in michigan and he plays lead with the basie orchestra so you're gonna end up playing second on this gig he's like just get in that ass <laughs> was his, like <laughs> advice to me he was like just play under him be really strong you yep. never know you might have an opportunity to play the bass band i was like okay yeah right but i did it and every part we played i was just under him and just supporting him and just like nailing the parts and we got along we hit it off like right away we were really getting along well yep. and i remember at the end like the gig was very successful all that and i was like hey uh you know, Mr. Williams, I, I really enjoy playing with you. You know, I'm hoping one day I might have the opportunity to, to, to play with the Basie Orchestra. You know, uh, it'd be great. He's like, ah, it's never going to happen. He's like, they, they, they only, you know, they only like to work with cats from New York. I'm the only one. You know, there's only very few of us who have been with the band for a very long time. We're based outside New York. Nah, yep. You know, I really love playing with you, but that's not going to happen. And so, I, you know, walked away like a puppy with his tail between his legs. Just, you know, very sad about it. I was like, okay, I guess I can't do this. But then... Next thing I know, like a few months later, like this was like September, I'd say by like November, I get a call from Derek. He's like, you're about to get a phone call from D. Askew, the manager of the Count Basie Orchestra, uh, because they want you to go on tour with them. I was like, Derek, stop playing on my phone. You know, things are really hard right now. (laughs) You know, like, it's not funny. He's like, no, I'm dead serious. Uh, Get ready for the phone call. And he hangs up. Next thing I know, I get a phone call from a Jersey number, and it's Diaskew, and she's like, uh, she's like, Chris, uh, you were recommended by Derek Gardner. Uh, we got a tour coming up that we want you to be on. Uh, basically, Freddie Hendricks, great, ridiculous trumpet player, Freddie Hendricks, uh, he was with the band playing third trumpet, got a gig touring with Alicia Keys. Ah. Um, you know, great for him. It was beautiful. And Freddie, if you don't know his playing, man, Freddie's just a beast. Uh, cool. But he got an opportunity to go on the road with Alicia Keys. She's like, and we're looking for somebody that's not New York based because a lot of the New York guys are way too busy to take the gigs and we need somebody dependable. And, um, you know, are you available to do this? 
And I was like, I mean, I, I was like, yes. <laughs> I didn't even ask any questions. <laughs> like, yes, I am. Um, I was like, so do I need to, you know, do I need to audition? Are you going to send me some material? She's like, Derek Gardner recommended you. This is your, th that was your audition. That was your audition. You got I was the like, gig. Yeah. Oh, and she's like, well, I tell you what, if you do well after this first uh, tour, then you'll be the, the third trumpet player in the bass orchestra. Yeah. I was like, okay, thank you. Thank you, Ms. Askew. Can you, uh, you know, she's like, send me your information for the flight, whatever, whatever. I was like, can you, you know, can you email me some music? Can you fax me some music? Like, whatever. Like, so I can start practicing, whatever. She didn't answer that question. She moved on to something else. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay. So next thing I know, I get the email and it's a six week tour. Woo! During that six week tour, we took one flight. So it was a six week bus tour. Wow. Right? And I'm, let's hotels see. Every night? Uh, hotels every night? Hotels every night. There were a couple of hit and runs. Yep. A couple hit and runs. On the bus. Yeah, we were just Woo. sleeping on the bus, moving to the next city. But, and I was, let's see, 2007, so I was 24 at the time. Wow. Right? Um, crazy experience, but learned a lot. But I remember the first gig, I, I never got any of the music. They never sent me any music. So uh, I've told this story a lot, but I love telling the story. So <laughs> I get to the first gig, and we go in for, the, for, the, for the, what I thought was a rehearsal but it was a sound check. There's a big difference between a rehearsal and a sound check that I wasn't fully aware of at the time. Hmm. So we get there and we play through the chart. Hey, Jim, it's a very straightforward chart, probably the most straightforward chart in the entire book. We play Hey, Jim, and I'm like, great, that went well. I'm feeling good. What's next? And they said, all right, guys, time for dinner. We didn't rehearse the rest of the music. I didn't get a chance to rehearse the rest of the music. So they're calling, and then they start calling out the names of tunes, giving the set order, but the songs aren't in alphabetical order. They're in numeric order. Yep. So as someone was like, hey, Jim, my friend Andre Rice, who later became a good friend of mine, uh, he's like, oh, yeah, that's going to be a 146. Yes. All right, all right. Load and swing, 32. And so 32. I'm like searching for this. But I'm looking. I'm like, but when am I going to practice? And I'm just <laughs> desperately thumbing through this music. It was just like chaos. Now I got to say, now they don't do that. Now somebody new comes in, they have like a big long rehearsal, they initiate them. I don't know, man. Just back then they didn't want to do that. Wow. So yeah, they got soft, I guess. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> so all of a sudden it was time to like eat dinner. We had to get off stage. And I was like, I hope I can play this concert. So we go put my suit on, barely eat anything. And they're like, ladies and gentlemen, the world famous Count Basie Orchestra. And I walk on a stage and my imposter syndrome is just like, all the way flared up like it's oh, just man. up here like i don't belong here someone's gonna discover me right and so we go we play hey jim first everything was smooth and then we just like the rest of the night was basically me just sight reading yeah. the entire basie like book or like one piece of it the next six weeks was me sight reading the basie book and i got to know the arrangements pretty well but man um yeah it was pretty wild it, then eventually you started arranging for the band right so i was pretty bold that first tour, uh, and I don't know, maybe this was just like my college, uh, you know, my, my good old college spirit. But uh, my first tour, I had an arrangement of Did You Call Her Today? And this is before, like, I, you know, I was like really passionate about arranging. It was still learning, but like, I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. But I had an arrangement of uh, Did You Call Her Today? And uh, I went, I took a, a cab. Well, first of all, during that first tour, I had just bought my first Mac laptop, a used Mac laptop. I took, uh, we get paid in cash back then. So after the first week of tour, I got get paid this like huge wad of cash for the first week. Jeez. I was just like, what? 
And I remember I like took a cab, found of a, ba a Bank of America where I could like deposit some of it, right? And then went to Guitar Center and bought my first MIDI keyboard, microphone, and pair of headphones. That wow. was like, my, my first studio setup because like I was like did nothing with DAWs when I was in college. Right. Like, maybe in one class I had one project I had to do, but I knew nothing, right? So I went and bought my first like everything. Um, as a matter of fact, that uh, key station you have behind you there. It was that forty. It was that M Audio forty nine yep. key station. Yep, that's the classic, right? <laughs> that's yep. the classic. Yep. I had that that mug <laughs> and a pair of headphones and a USB M Audio microphone. Not even an interface, just a USB mic that plugged right in. And I was yep. constantly writing and creating on the road. But so what ended up happening was um, I probably like three weeks in, I was feeling pretty bold. I asked uh, Bill Hughes, uh, the late Bill Hughes, I asked him if I could be bring an arrangement into one of our sound checks. He's like, all right, young blood. My name is young blood for like a few years. All right, sure. young blood. Yeah, <laughs> sure. You can do that. So again, I found a, a Kinko's, <laughs> right? I found a Kinko's, went to the Kinko's, had all my stuff on USB and printed out charts and taped them and everything. Yep. Brought them into a sound check and we read it. And man, it was like, it's a good chart. It's still a chart that I like, I've revised it, but it's still a chart that I like, play with some high school groups now and have done some work with but uh the issue was it wasn't written specifically in the basie style the other issue was that it was the same changes as in a mellow tone and yep. we have the famous frank foster version of in a mellow tone so it's one of those charts that was never really going to get played because like yeah we could do this or we could just do in a mellow tone and that's like the classic deal right right um huge brass so it required a lot of practicing but i remember I got feedback from the guys. A couple guys were like, oh man, I really enjoyed that. Quite a few were like, nah, the range is all wrong and this is off and this is all. Like a lot of things that I needed to correct, but it was like a really big learning moment of having yep. these like professional cats read the charts and I learned a lot. Um, That's such valuable, those are valuable moments, right? When somebody actually is honest with you about something. It's like, I'd much oh, rather yeah. have somebody be like, hey, this is what needs to be fixed. I mean, they, I feel like, especially in the Midwest, we get really like, because oh, people are actually speaking directly to us. And it's oh, like, yeah. that's so important for learning. You know, I I, was, yeah. I did this Roy Hargrove tribute with uh, Justin Robinson came and played. Mm. Um, and we played a tune together. And after he pulled me off stage and he was like, man, I could hear that like, you were really trying to do this thing and the band was really trying to do this thing. And it's like, you got to just kind of let go of the changes and just play what the band is playing. Cause it's like, mm. you were trying to stick too close to the thing and the band was really exploring. And it was just like, it was such a great moment, man. It was such, it was a moment where I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. And I kind of changed my whole, my whole, I was like, yep. okay, I've done all this prep. Now I got to forget it and just play with the band. Right. And, and, um, and, and I was so worried about playing everything right. Cause Justin was there. Right. Like, he's like, right. man, you got to let go. And, and, and here's the thing is like, as much as we, you know, to me, it's like, you look at a doctor, right? And uh, <laughs> one of my professors, Randy Gillespie at MSU used to always say this. He's like, you, you, got a, you got a doctor. What do they do? They go to school. They go to school for, you know, what, six, eight years, however, however many years. And then what do they do when they get out of school? They do their residency. And then what do they do after that? They go into their practice. <laughs> I, was, I was just like, it touched me, man. It was like, wow. He's like, they still are practicing what they're doing yeah and so it's like you learn all the stuff but you need to go out and your practice your real life application is doing it right learning on the job so i 100 agree and it was like i could have taken that and just been devastated by it and just been heartbroken but it was like you know what no i'm gonna use this okay what are the things that are a problem what are the things that came up great the next time i brought an arrangement and it was like a few months later it was a first european tour 
uh, that I uh, that I ever went on, and it was in it was 2008. And so I go on this tour, and I brought an arrangement that I had done of Marcus Belgrave's "All My Love." Marcus Belgrave, great uh, trumpet player and educator uh, in Detroit, yep. that was one of my mentors growing up. Um, sadly, he's passed in, in recent years. Um, amazing musician, can't say enough about him. Just really influential to everything that I do, especially as an educator and everything. Um, but I brought in one of his tunes, "All My Love," and the band loved it. Hmm. Um, it's funny. I revisited that because I'm going to play that on a concert that's coming up, and I had to edit a lot of things, but it worked. It was cool. The vibe yeah, was cool. Yeah. And I remember we rehearsed at the sound check a few times, and we were in Italy, and we were in Italy, and then all of a sudden. I look at the set list and all my love is on the set list. And from that moment forward, I'd say like almost every night for like the next like two years, like we would play all my love like very often. I was just, man, I was so, so touched. I was thankful enough to get a recording from uh, when we played at Nutria High School. Um, Then from there, you know, uh, I left the band for a little bit when my my kids were first born. When I started touring again, uh, a Christmas album came up and I was asked to arrange uh, Sleigh Ride and uh, Let It Snow. For, okay. for, an, for an album we were doing. That was my first time writing for a project. I wrote what I considered to be like my opus uh, <laughs> for Sleigh Ride, and I put a lot of work into, you know, uh, Let It Snow as well. We rehearsed Sleigh Ride one time in a rehearsal, and they just like, just cut it. Like, yeah, it's not bassy enough. It's got too many like meter switches and all this other stuff. It sounds yep. too modern. It's not bassy enough. And I was... I was salty. I was pretty salty at the time. They actually ended up hiring Gordon Goodwin overnight to write an arrangement and bring it into the studio. Wow. And, and I was like, I was like, man, I could have done this. But anyway, I oh. did later record that with my band. I got to say, it is a killing recording. But I was going to say, it. I think I just heard that on YouTube. Yeah. I was going down your YouTube right. rabbit hole. and Don't get me wrong. It's a great arrangement, but I agree. It's not, it's not bassy. It's not, it was not tailor-made for the bassy orchestra. Sure. But then on the flip, I did Let It Snow which had a lot more bassy elements, but still wasn't 100% there. We were working with Greg Phil was uh, producing the recording and we were at Capitol uh, Studios in, uh, in LA. And I remember he pulled me to the side and he was like, Chris, you know, I just feel like you got this like figure that the rhythm section's playing. Bassy orchestra wouldn't have done that. They would have like swung through that and let the horns play that figure, this and this. He's like, man, I don't know what we're going to do. I was like, no, no, I said, tell me everything. So I took the score out and right there in the moment, I marked up, I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. He's like, Chris, I don't know if we're going to be able to make these changes. We got to record. I said. If just give me an opportunity to do it. He's like, all yep. right. I went and grabbed everybody's parts, laid all the parts out in Capitol Records, like on the on the thing, had the score pulled up and just started circling, like, don't play this figure, change these things up, rhythm section, swing these changes here. I just edited everything by by hand on these wow. charts, marked everything up, took it back in, like, all right, let's go for it. And Greg had a lot of great ideas um, about things that we should do. And it was like, I didn't write anything new. It was right. all the same material. It was just like, don't play this, don't play this. Great, this is here. Try this instead. And Ellis Marcellus was the featured soloist on it, and it ended cool. up being like this, just like really, really strong track that I'm really, really proud of. But what it it made me learn is, I have my own voice in my head of how I like to write and how I like to interpret music. Yep. But it is important to write to the group that you're playing for and i had yeah. this idealistic like well everybody should just be able to play my voice this is my opportunity for my voice it's like no no this opportunity to write in the style of the bassy orchestra right next time around uh, a record came up that i arranged for uh the one that was nominated for a grammy all about that bassy um we i was actually asked to arrange earth wind and fires can't high love 
And so again, I was like, no, nah, I'm writing this straight in the basic style and, yeah. and did it. And it was like really, it turned out really well. Next thing I know is like Thanksgiving. Um, I was about to like the day after Thanksgiving, I was flying uh, out to go on tour. And I remember I had to fly to Utah first, grab my stuff. And then I was heading out to, to go to this, this tour. And we were doing like a two week tour and then ending it with a recording session. Mm-hmm. And so I fly out to Utah. By the time I got to Utah, I got a text from Scotty Barnhart and he's like, Hey, Chris, uh, love the can't hide love, you know, the great, great arrangement. Hey, I'm thinking we, you know, that song Adele, uh, that song hello by Adele. I was like, yeah. He's like, we want to do that. Can you arrange that in the style of Basie? I was like, hello. He's like, yeah, hello. And the style, I was like, all right, cool. I got you. No problem. So I went straight to my office the day after Thanksgiving yeah. and was like in my office writing this arrangement. And one day just had to knock it out because I was flying out the next day to go on tour. So then we're on the road, we're doing whatever. Scotty's sitting in the front of the tour bus. And he sends me a text. Hey, Chris, you know that song, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen? I was like, yeah, I love that song. Yeah, we, we want to do that one too, man. You knocked out Hello so quickly. Can, you think you could put something together? I was like, all right. So we were at Yoshi's Jeez. and we had, a, we had a sound check. Right after sound check, I just made sure I was fully dressed, ready to go. I went over the keyboard and was just <laughs> starting to write this arrangement. In a matter of a couple of days, I had Hallelujah written. And it wow. was just like, next thing I know, though, I was like, I had three three charts that got recorded on this Basie record, which I'm just like Amazing. super, super proud of. And I was proud of how all, what's funny is Hallelujah was the most rushed and it's the one that we made absolutely no changes to. It was like, you know, it's natural to like make changes to stuff in the studio, but that one just knocked out. So anyway, those yeah. are just a couple, a couple of adventures with the Basie Orchestra about how I started writing for them. But man, I'm, that's very cool, man. And you, honored, so you were sort of you like know? sharpening your tools in terms of, learning to write in the bassy style so by the time you got to hallelujah it was like maybe I'd you say, had some way of yeah. approaching it that you felt like yeah there really was a considerable was amount of time like we're talking quite a few years in between when i first brought in did you call it a day and that was rejected to when i uh brought in uh all my love and then there was a lot more years in between then and when i first did let her, let it snow and sleigh oh. ride Okay. Then from there, I'd say like maybe like a two year span, I really honed in my because there were a couple of vocalists, a couple of pro- I did a couple of projects, special projects that didn't get recorded, but like I wrote after that slate ride incident, I wrote everything straight in the bassy style, and it was all in me. It was really a choice of like I've been playing all this right. music, I know all the figures, I know the style, I yep. know the harmony, I have all the tools. I just need to make the decision to like basically humble myself and just be like, cool, let me write in this style, and then since then like. It's great. I've been called on to write quite a few arrangements for the group and they know I can like nail it in that style. It was more so kind of like a an arrogance thing almost or like a maturity. Let's say let's say maturity. It was maturity, like a maturity yeah, thing sure. of, yo, this is what the gig is. The gig is write this. Yep. You're not going to get up and play shiny stockings and play a Woody Shaw solo. Right. Like the gig is play this style. Yeah. You know, and so find how do they handle uh, yeah. how do they handle royalties for for those tunes like uh were you paid for the arrangements? And, yeah, and I was just paid. To, I was just paid for the arrangements because you know it's an arrangement, so no yep. all, all royalties would be due to the to the original composer. Okay. Um, but you know, got a paycheck to actually write the arrangement, and it was and that was it. Right. Cool. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I remember you telling. I I feel like you told a story, and I, I, now I'm wondering if I made this up in my head that you when we when you were playing with Lincoln Center Orchestra, uh, were you like flutter tonguing instead of growling, and then somebody was like, "Hey, go home and learn how to growl." Was that? Did you tell that story? Um, 
so that wasn't when I subbed. I, I subbed with Lincoln Center one time, and this was okay. like a, about a year ago. Um, great experience, man. Really beautiful. Yeah. But no, it was actually uh, in a master class when I was in college. Oh, okay. When so I was in back. college, went and came to uh, to MSU and did a master class, and I was playing the song of "The Shepherd" by Duke Ellington, and uh, yeah, and and when when came and did a master class and like led this master class with me as the soloist on that piece, and I was fluttering everything. Yeah. Um, but he's standing next to me and he's playing this and like, bro, I just learned so much. I heard, I heard what he was doing. Yeah. I felt what he was doing. And it was, I had listened to recordings of him and I never knew how he got the sound that he got yeah. when he was next to me. It's like, Oh, that's how you do that thing. You know? Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely just hearing him like physically growl and like sing an extra note to get yep. this sound out was like life changing, you know? Yeah. I, I heard Terrell Stafford tell a really similar story about, uh, subbing it, I think maybe with the Vanguard big band with Fattis mm. playing lead trumpet, maybe. Mm. Uh, mm. It, it was some band. It was band in New York City. This was like 2006. He told the story where he was on the gig and he was flutter tonguing to growl, and Fattis was like, "Go learn how to growl, or you're not on the gig." You know, <laughs> something wow. like that. Wow. And Terrell was like, "So I had to figure out how to." And I remember hearing that in 2006 and being like, "I still can't figure it out." And even <laughs> just in the last two couple of years, I figured it out finally. Oh, good. And it's good. it's such a different it's such a different thing than fluttering. I mean, it's like it has a different velocity, a, a different uh, visceral feeling to it. Oh, right? yeah, than, than fluttering. absolutely. And uh, and now I'm I, like I like it, and so now I have to be like conscious about not doing it. I'm like, don't do it all the time. It's too much. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's, it's it's a fun thing to unlock, man. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, for me too, it's like I'm I'm thankful that playing with those sounds and, and learning how to be expressive in different ways was like a pretty important part of my, like my upbringing, especially when I was in college and I was hanging, you know, hanging around Wyclef Gordon at one point <clears throat> who taught at MSU this masterclass with Winton. And so I picked up on a lot of that type of stuff and I've always just naturally wanted to incorporate like unique sounds into my playing for sure. Cool. How'd you get started like scoring web series and, and musicals and stuff like that? Was that stuff that started in college or did you do that after yeah, it was something I always wanted to do. I was always very interested in uh, in, in musical theater as well as film. Um, for me, it was like Spike Lee films and hearing Terrence Blanchard scores or Bill Lee scores, you know, in some cases. Uh, yep. That's what like, that's what was transformative for me was just like seeing like, just like these like super, super like black movies, like super, super African-American culture, like beacons, you know, and then yep. hearing like this beautiful like orchestra play like the sound of like the black american music canon like like those sounds translate into orchestra i got really serious about it terrence blanchard's uh jazz and film was very transformative for me as well cool. and so it was something i was always interested in but just never had the opportunity to do. and like man technology has exploded in the last 20 years yep you know so yep. Back then, it was like, <laughs> back then, <laughs> it just it just wasn't as accessible. But I remember I was already with the Basie Orchestra, and there was a website called Mandy.com. That was like the Craigslist of like the film world, right? Huh. Where you would just go in and just like basically like search like film composer needed. And it was like they had everything from like, you know, like the Griffiths and the like, you know, the cinematographers, all that stuff. But you would go in and I would just like apply for these listings. And I just had like a spiel like, hey, here's some of my recorded music. That's what I want to do. But like a lot of these were like free opportunities. Hmm. But I couldn't get any of them because I didn't have any of my music synced to film. Finally, uh, Lisa Robinson, 
uh, and her uh, so uh, other producer, who I'm actually working for a project for right now, Phil Branch, they really liked my music. And they had a project, a web series that everyone was just doing on love. Everybody was doing for experience, mm-hmm. writing and directing and shooting and all this stuff for the first time. It was called The Punani Diaries. <laughs> and uh, it was hilarious. And I actually got selected to write the music for that. And I figured it out. I was scoring in GarageBand. Wow. Like where you couldn't even do tempo changes. So yep. like I'm writing this in GarageBand. Eventually I got Logic and it like changed my life. It got so much easier. But yeah, I was just like figuring this thing out and I was producing in Reason and like recording trumpet in GarageBand and figured out a lot of stuff. But it was like, it was like a great experience. Um, so I really kind of cut my teeth with that. And then over time did a, a, you know, another project for Phil like years later, another one for Lisa years later, started working with other directors Um but like that first piece to be able to have any form of reel to be able to show this is what my work looks like. It's, I think it's different now because yeah. now like I, I see a lot of young composers, they just go to YouTube, grab a video that they can and just like rescore it. It was like not quite as accessible back then, but yeah, yeah. now it's at the yeah. point where, uh, you know, it's, it's great. I get a lot of, a lot of context that I've made over the years that have been able to see my material that can easily go and check out my website and see what, what materials I have up. And uh, yeah, go from and then there. you can get new opportunities from that. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. Are you thinking about scoring major films someday? Is that a goal? Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I'd love to do that. Um, I did do uh, a web series that was featured on Issa Rae's YouTube channel um, called uh, King Esther that was uh, written and directed by my friend Dewey Gerard. Uh, it's brilliant, brilliant. Um, and that was actually nominated for an Emmy. Cool. Um, the the score wasn't, but the actual project was nominated for an Emmy. Yeah. Um, for me, I'm constantly doing that. So, like, I'm working on this documentary right now. I uh, scored a concept piece for Dewey um, for another project. Listen, man, it's just a matter of time as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, you sure. Know, I, I don't live in L.A., so it's not, like, a full-time deal or whatever, but I'm always excited to write for film, and it's a, it's a huge passion of mine. And I, that's why I got all these sample libraries. That's why I got the studio, you know, yeah, <laughs> to be able nice. to do that stuff. So, hey, you mentioned uh, Black American music. Uh, you mind unpacking this for me just a little bit? You know, the, the, the word jazz... When it started to gain prominence, Duke Ellington went to Fletcher Henderson and was like, they're calling our music jazz. We got to come up with some other name for it, mm. right? Miles Davis spoke out against it, called it, wanted to call it social music. Lee Morgan wanted to call it black classical music. Max Roach would lecture about it. Uh, Charles Bingus. I mean, like all the major names in the music spoke out against the word jazz, essentially. Uh, a name that was given to them by white journalists. Right. Um, you know... Nicholas Payton has rekindled this conversation. Mm-hmm. What does black American music mean to you? What's your relationship with this conversation of jazz versus black American music? I've heard Wynton Marsalis go like, we're the only people that w- create an amazing new art form and we want to run away from it as fast as we can. You know, So there's people on the other side of the conversation too. Uh, where are you at with that? For me, you know, um, I'm not necessarily... I, I really stand by what... Nicholas Payton has shared about his thoughts about black American music, about the word jazz. I also firmly believe that uh, it was created, you know, by, by critics and by people who didn't necessarily have the best interest of the music in mind, didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily qualified enough. Right. Weren't necessarily qualified enough to be able to name it. And I believe that that happens commonly in our culture where it's just like these culture vultures come around and just, create something on our behalf and take take the music of people of color. It happens all the time. It's a very common yeah. thing. Um, I'm not necessarily of the belief that I think anything's going to change, that I think it's going to stop being widely known as jazz, but that's to me, that's not really the point. 
the point right. is like you'll notice you're not really going to see the word jazz on my website but that doesn't mean that if someone called me a jazz musician i'd be offended my particular way of thinking of it is like i'm a composer my music sounds like me like i don't i'm not no. i'm not necessarily writing music that is like locked into this one genre i like the word black american music because it's a, a bit more inclusive and yep. then it could like i'm a black american musician i'm literally a black american musician so for me it it, it works really well um but i'm personally not in a position of like trying to tell somebody else what they need to call it and i don't think i don't think nicholas payton is either I think if, if people yeah. actually pay attention to what he's saying, he's saying, me personally, this is how I want you to refer to my music. Me personally, I don't like that word. Yeah. Um, and, and he also says, BAM is for everyone. BAM is for the children. Yeah, you know, it's exactly. Like, yeah, there's a, it's, yeah, there's a, a lot of thing. that, like you're saying, it's it's more all-encompassing, it's more inclusive, but it's also recognizing the originators, the creators, the the people who who really push the music forward at all phases of the music, Right. Uh, while also maybe all recognizing that you know, Paul Whiteman and his orchestra were were more famous than many of their black artist counterparts and and Dave Brubeck and yep. I mean it's like you could go on and on with Eminem and, and Elvis, right? This this same conversation. Yeah. Um I've I've found this conversation really interesting to follow and to to, to try and listen and learn <sighs> myself. Uh, and being like the director of jazz studies at a university, you know, when I took the gig, this conversation was like at its height and I was like should I be changing the name of the job? Like, what? Where, right. where are we but at? You know, you know what I mean? You know, uh, I think it's uh, what school is that in New Orleans? Uh, I should know this because I actually applied for a job that didn't end up getting it. Um, Tulane? Great, what is it? Tulane? Great. Uh, Tulane. I think yeah. it was Tulane. Uh, and a great uh, pianist, Jesse, Jesse McBride, actually got the name changed for that program. And that program is now known as like a black, black American music program. Wow. Uh, hopefully I'm not mistaken here, but I believe uh I love that I like am going to Instagram to check and, and make sure I yeah, got this right. Yeah. <laughs> Jess McBride, who was like brilliant, brilliant keyboardist, brilliant uh, you know, piano player and, and yeah. uh um an educator. But yeah, it's actually uh the black American music program cool. at, at Tulane. So to me, that's that's some that's some level of progress. And it, yep. it, it depends on the institution. It depends on the person. It depends on the personal preference. Uh, for me personally, I'm not going out describing my group as a jazz group. I don't necessarily subscribe to it being that. Yep. But I'm not. But my personal take is I'm not personally going to be offended by that. Everybody's different. But I think let's put it this way: if we can respect, as we should, if we can respect the pronouns that people want to be called by and that they identify mm -hmm. with, yep. I think it's easy enough to be able to respect someone not wanting their music to be called jazz or someone wanting their music to be called black American music. Absolutely. Uh, it's it, To me, it's a, it's offensive. If someone says, I don't want to be referred to this in, in this way, it's offensive to turn around and refer to them in that way. Right. Yusuf Latif is another person who had a, a very different, he's like, I don't like the word jazz. Yep. You know? Um, yep. So anyway, I think it's, I think it's safe I think it's safe to say that people are going to make the individualized choices that they need to make in order for the music to represent what it is, whatever it is for them. But right. uh, I have no problem using that term. I actually got, I got a, like a weird Facebook comment from it one time from someone because uh, in one of my advertisements for progressions, you should know, I talked about these are chord progressions that were pulled from the black American music 
canon, which I believe yep. is very true. That's literally what I'm teaching. Right. It's like, oh, music belongs to everyone. It's like, yeah, so does Bam. Yeah. Cool. It's great. That's right. Yeah, I'm glad you agree with me, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not, you know, like, do we yeah. call, like, do we make up some, like, random name for, like, Mexican food or, you know, or something else? Soul right. food is something that was named by the black community as being soul food. Are we going to yeah. turn around and call it something else? Yeah. Or are we going to, like, respect the people who made the music enough to, like, call it what they want it to be called? Yeah. yeah. Don't read the comments. Ah, exactly. Yeah. I right? Was told that There's I always was told some that trash that in those comment sections. Hey, so what do you have planned coming up, man? This, you know, to, to kind of wrap it up, what do you, what do you have coming up? Uh, you doing stuff two, with your large ensemble at all? Yeah, two, two major things. Um, I mean, one, you know, obviously right now leading the team at Community Music School Detroit. Super proud of that. Working with my alma mater at Michigan State. Uh, just, yep. you know, offering lifelong education, music therapy, early childhood music, private lessons, group lessons, uh, ensembles everything uh music production quite a few things so anybody's in the metro detroit area uh at any age and you're looking to continue your musical studies please visit us at cms.msu.edu get involved awesome. there and we'll link down uh, the show notes too yeah please please in addition to that uh two major projects coming up i'm actually leading uh a band through the uh detroit symphony orchestra uh, it's actually the paradise jazz series big band so this is the first um professional big band through the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. So it's a cool. it's like a bunch of just like hard hitting great musicians from the Detroit area. Um and Terrence Blanchard is our special guest. So that's coming up in, on April 30th. Uh so dso.org for more information about that. And awesome. then also more information should be coming out soon, but uh, a, a musical I was commissioned to write Haitian Street the musical is going to be pr premiering uh, during the last two weekends of July. So you can definitely stay tuned to any of my social media feeds uh, at Chris Johnson Music or ChrisJohnsonMusic.com where I'll post more information about that. Uh, tickets aren't on sale yet, but once that does become available, I'll make sure I'll be uh, spreading the gospel about it. So those are major awesome. projects for me, man, on top of just, you know, all the random stuff that pops up <laughs> that I'm yeah, working on. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. This was awesome. I really appreciate you doing it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, dude. Yeah, this was great. All right. All right, talk to you soon. All right, thanks, man. Peace. Yep.